Live from WNUR News, I'm Nick Song. And I'm Brandon Condritz. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1, Evanston, Chicago. It's Friday, February 24th. Tonight on WNUR News. Whoa! Whoa! What was that? I don't know. There was just a loud bang sound from the back of the studio. Is this some sort of hazing ritual? No, that was last week. Okay, all right. Hold on. Let me check. Okay, be, be careful. Okay, there seems to be some sort of message written in blood. What type? A, a or B? Well, I don't know. Just listen. It says, Welcome to a very special broadcast of WNUR News. The theme of tonight's show, WNUR Unsolved. What does that even mean? There's more. In this next hour, we'll tell you the stories about mysteries that have befuddled the minds of those who walk the halls of Northwestern, from that gigantic antenna on top of tech, to how the heck people, quote, find love in a hopeless place. Sounds terrifyingly interesting. Those stories and more, coming up tonight on WNUR News at 6. And that's where the message stops. Well, you heard the blood. Let's get this show up and running. All right. Walking along Sheridan, you may have seen a huge metallic structure jutting out from the top of tech. Why is there a huge antenna on top of tech? NSA surveillance? WNUR News' own Nick Song looked into it and found the world of ham radio. Hello, CQ, CQ, CQ. This is Whiskey 9 Bravo Golf X-Ray, W9BGX, calling CQ and listening. license I think when I was 14 and I built my own transceivers and antennas and whatnot. That's Professor Alan Sahakian. I was the chair of electrical engineering and computer science for eight years before I transitioned now into a new role as one of the associate deans. He's also the head of Northwestern's ham radio club on campus. The, the student organization is the Northwestern University Amateur Radio Society or NUARS. NUARS was created in 1949 just eight years after tech finished being built. Initially, we built this room for the ham radio club and ham radio activities, but in order to maximize utilization of the room, you can see it's also being shared here for storage. Right, I see, I see a bunch of grills here. Yeah. Even without the grills and propane tanks in the corner, seemingly every inch of available space is filled with equipment dedicated to ham radio. We have some special features in this room. Do you see those big cables that are going through the wall? Those cables lead out to the extreme parts of this building with a very long cable run like several hundred feet. A half-foot-wide metal grounding strip runs horizontally across the walls in a single uninterrupted perimeter loop. If there's a nearby lightning strike, that essentially can dissipate any static, gives it a path for that to go to ground. I'm seeing all this equipment, and it's, first of all, did you help set this up? Yes. So I actually designed this room, and... Um, it's a really great room also. Yeah, thank you. But the, the core of the ham radio station in the club is here on this desk. This is what's called a, a station. It's called a, a transceiver, and we have an amplifier, and we have power supplies, and then an antenna controller. The entire room, it's something you'd expect to see on a command deck of a ship. There's large block letters hanging from the wall that spell out the station's call sign, W9BGX. And so I have to say that this station, with the flat terrain and Lake Michigan here, 
We have one of the strongest signals in the United States. Really? Yes. We can get pretty powerful signals. Now at this point, you're probably wondering, what even is ham radio? To put it simply, amateur or ham radio is a form of communication that utilizes radio waves across the electromagnetic spectrum. Is that too jargony? Let's break down what that actually means. Our phones work on radio and Wi-Fi. Well, that's radio. Bluetooth, that's radio. It's all these invisible uses of radio. That's Sierra Harrop. She's the public relations and outreach manager for the American Radio Relay League, or ARRL, the managing body for ham radio in the U.S. We don't see the antennas anymore, but radio is all around us. And amateur radio is just the licensed, structured use of the same kind of radio waves that we use in our world all around us, but for recreational and public service purposes. Think of it like this. You're listening to WNUR 89.3 FM. That number, 89.3, represents what part of the electromagnetic spectrum that our station uses to broadcast on, which is 89.3 megahertz. So if we think about this spectrum, there's lots of different frequencies at which radio can operate. You know, some of it's picked up by our car as we're cruising down the road. Some of it is a lot lower than that and goes all the way around the world. Think AM and below that even. Well, there are international bodies that have said, hey, this spectrum is valuable. We need to allocate it. And so some of it's, you know, blocked off for cell phones, some of it's blocked off for Wi-Fi, some of it's blocked off for television. FM radio stations in the U.S. broadcast on a frequency band that's between 88.0 megahertz and 108.0 megahertz. You may notice that's how far the dials go when you're trying to adjust channels on radio. But there's a lot of chunks of frequencies in between there that are available for people to use. And so they use them recreationally when there's not a crisis. Ham radio users just use other frequencies along the electromagnetic spectrum to communicate. With the transceivers on, and what you're hearing now, we're listening to what's called the 20 meter band. That's roughly 14 megahertz. So 20 meters is the wavelength at the speed of light at 14 megahertz. Hello, CQ, CQ, CQ. This is Whiskey 9, Bravo Golf X-Ray, W9BGX, calling CQ and listening. Beyond the differences in frequency, a key difference is that ham radio users don't broadcast. They transmit. You kind of think in two different terms. Broadcast stations are broadcasting. They're sending their message out, and people are free to tune in and listen to it, but it's not a two-way street. Ham radio, we don't even call it broadcasting. We call it transmitting because at the end of a transmit cycle, we're going to stop and we're going to listen and somebody else is going to talk back to us. And it becomes a two-way conversation. And that is what builds friendships and that is what builds relationships and builds community. So there's a sort of an adventurous aspect of it. That you're sending a signal off into the world and who knows what's going to come back. You know, it's a sense it's a little like fishing that way. It could be anybody anywhere in the world that you're talking with. You might talk to somebody in El Salvador in one minute, and then somebody in, in Taiwan another minute, and somebody in Sanford, Florida. Um, and sometimes you don't. You throw, in the, you throw in your bait, and nothing comes back. Throw in your bait again, nothing comes back. Eventually you catch something, and maybe it was something very interesting you caught. There are three classes of ham radio licenses. Each one corresponds to the frequencies you're allowed to operate on. The VHF frequency bands. Which is where television band sort of begins or UHF, which is higher than that. Meaning the waves don't go nearly as far on their own. You can find them on your handheld walkie-talkie kind of radios. The bigger antennas you tend to see operate on what we know as HF, or high frequency. Transmitting on the HF band, you can receive and transmit signals from all over the world. 
HF bounces off the atmosphere and will literally go all around the world, sometimes in both directions. So you have to know when it's sort of like sunlight between those two places, then the signal will sort of follow that uh, channel, um, so to speak, between the ionosphere and the surface of the Earth and it can get to that other place. And so what the bigger antennas do is they are electrically longer, electrically longer, so they work on much lower frequencies, which tend to go further. So you can talk to someone in Europe, you can talk to someone in Asia, you can talk to someone in literally Antarctica with one of those big antennas that you can't just do with, you know, a handheld radio and a little stubby antenna. HF requires equipment that can cost thousands of dollars. Beyond the financial costs, not everyone can just put up a 20-foot tall beam antenna on their roof. Professor Sahakian isn't one of those people. When you walk into tech, I'm sure as you walk past this many times, you probably notice there's a big antenna up on the North Tower near Sheridan Road. Um, that's the main antenna for the ham radio station. It's called a beam antenna. It's a directional antenna. If you want, we can walk out the front of the building and I can show you the antenna. Yeah, sure. That'd be yeah. awesome. So we're outside tech on like the main courtyard, I guess, right off the of Sheridan. Courtyard. So that's the vertical antenna over there. But this is the one to look at. Oh, wow. God, I didn't even realize it was right there. Yep. Wow. It's very, uh, very massive. It has a large moment of inertia, and so you, you have to turn it sort of slowly. But yeah, it, it turns. Wow. And even on a cold day like today, it turns. <laughs> it looks like a helicopter. It's that massive. There's a sort of an adventurous aspect of it. That you're sending a signal off into the world, and who knows what's going to come back. It's a little like fishing that way. It could be anybody, anywhere in the world that you're talking with. And again, with the beam antenna, we can sort of narrow down the region that we'd like to contact. You might talk to somebody in El Salvador one minute, and then somebody in, in Taiwan another minute, and sometimes you don't. It, you know, in a sense, it's a little like fishing that way. You throw in your bait, and nothing comes back. Throw in your bait again, nothing comes back. Eventually, you catch something, and maybe it was something very interesting you caught. Much of the ham radio community makes it their goal to contact stations on the farthest ends of the Earth. Those remote transmitters are called DX stations. I talk to Europe a lot. I talk to Africa every so often, South America. I'm still trying to get a conversation with Japan. I've talked to the International Space Station several times, and I think that's probably the most remote place I've ever successfully chatted with. Occasionally, a team of brave operators will embark on what's called a de-expedition. These operators will set up a temporary station in the most remote parts of the world just so that they can transmit from there. The two most difficult places to talk to on ham radio, number one is North Korea because of the political situation there. Number two is a spot in the very far southern tip of the world just off of Antarctica called Bouvet Island. It's in the South Atlantic Ocean and it's ice covered. It's not really great for human beings to survive there. Literally just a rock with some penguins and a giant sheet of ice on it. Right now, there is one of these events going on. And so this group of folks raised lots of money to sail out to Bouvet Island and went out there and set up a temporary radio station just so that radio amateurs around the world can talk to them. It's such a desirable thing to contact these people. In fact, it gets organized and people are sort of lined up to, to make the contact. And that's a real brief conversation. It's a signal report and a confirmation of your call sign, and that's it. It's literally to tick a box in your logbook. So you have, to, you have to like really wait in line in order to talk to these people who are out there. Yeah, they try to make the best use of their time while they're there. 
I tried along with hundreds of thousands of other people, but I was not successful for Bouvet this time. Everybody wanted to talk to him. So I wasn't one of the lucky ones that did, but they did talk to, I believe about 20,000. They made about 20,000 contacts around the world for the period of time that they were there. Hello, CQ, CQ, CQ. Hello, CQ, CQ, CQ. This is Whiskey 9, Bravo Golf X-Ray, W9BGX in Evanston, Illinois, listening. The ham radio community currently stands at 750,000 members in the United States. Well, sorry, no QSO today. Very few of them are transmitting here at Northwestern. Yeah, it's, it's dwindled more than a little bit over the years. The pandemic actually was sort of the last car. You have to be physically at the station to operate, and we had closed campus. So that really was a loss of continuity. He wants to start attracting new members again now that campus is back up and running. Amateur radio in the year 2023 may seem counterintuitive. After all, cell phones and the internet have made communication easier than ever. Students who might say, why should I do this? I can already communicate with anybody I want on, on Instagram or whatever. But that increased access doesn't automatically lead to the creation of relationships with other people. What Ham Radio offers is a way of tapping into a global community of people who share a similar passion for communication. It's a bottomless well, where you'll always find a new person willing to talk and connect with you. Those relationships made between operators is why Ham Radio continues to remain relevant today. But if people want to have the adventure, which I, you know, for me it actually is an adventure. The sheer act of transmitting means tapping into a history that stretches far beyond yourself. Just look at an operator's call sign. My call sign's W5DX. Both my parents were amateur radio operators, and I, I've known it literally my whole life. My call sign's very special because it was my dad's. It's what's called a vanity call. Back in 1996, the FCC made it an option for you to pick your own call sign if it wasn't previously assigned. In the first day of vanities, my dad filed for W5DX. Five is Oklahoma and Texas. I, we were both from Oklahoma. And then DX, that stands for distant station, what we were just talking about with the de-expedition. And so when he passed away in 2019, I took advantage of an FCC rule that allows you to claim the call sign of a close relative that had passed on. And so I'm able to keep my dad's call sign alive. And that's just a real privilege to operate as W5TX. If you're interested in ham radio, the barrier to entry couldn't be lower. Harrop recommends finding your local ham radio club, which means any NU students interested should email Professor Sahakian about getting involved in NUARS. Getting licensed from the FCC is super simple and straightforward. There is a test. It is a regulated hobby. So the FCC wants to know that you know electrical safety, that you're going to follow the rules, have to take a knowledge test. It's 35 questions, and then you're a licensed radio amateur. The easiest one, technician. I passed when I was 15, and I'm not the brightest person on the planet, anyone will tell you. So if I can do it as a teenager, anyone can do it. As for why it's called ham radio. It's not a proper noun. It's not an acronym. My understanding is that from the telegraph days, when somebody maybe wasn't the best at sending Morse code over the wire, they were known as ham-fisted. And so when wireless technology came about in the early 20th century, the radio amateurs at the time would be using Morse code over the radio. And the professional, you know, ship Morse code operators and things like that said, oh, those are just a bunch of ham-fisted people. And so they became known kind of pejoratively as hams. But in a spunky, fun spirit, they pick that up and ran with it. That's where we get ham radio. It's really just this hokey thing where it started as an insult and the early operators said, yeah, we're good with that and ran with it.
For WNUR News, I'm Nick Song. WNUR's Phonathon is happening now. It's the one time a year we ask for money. Our annual fundraiser helps support station maintenance and upkeep, student events, and most importantly, it keeps us ad-free. It is running until the 27th of February this year. Listeners can donate at wnur.org donate. There are various tiers available with multiple different merchandise perks. So we have WNUR staff member Jonah Turner here Woo! to answer a fun question that kind of goes along with our broadcast tonight. Jonah, what is a mystery about Northwestern that entrances you? You know, for me, I think it's a mystery a lot of people have, but just because my roommate has harasses me about it constantly, it has to be the elder staircase. Every time we walk down there to eat, he's he's like, why does it smell so bad? And I'm like, I know he's going to say it. I know it's going to happen, but it's still like, it's a mystery that gets brought up every time I eat there. You know, I've, I, sh I have that same question. Every time I go in elder, it just smells horrendous and it really ruins my appetite. So what are your, what are your theories? What do you think's going on? Honestly, to me, I think it, it smells like raw sewage, so it's gotta, there's got to be some, like, sewer connection pipeline down there that's leaking, or they're dumping, like, the kitchen trash in that underneath that staircase. It's got to be something down there. I don't know. Could it be, like, a person? I don't know. Like, is there <laughs> someone who just, like, routinely goes down there without, like, wearing deodorant and really needs to? I mean, you never know. You never know. Elder's a sketchy, a sketchy dorm, so you never know. I, you know, Elder, I think Elder's a good place. I, it, it, you know, it's kind of sad that yeah. there is, it just smells like sewage because the food there is so good. That's so, very true. It honestly you know. is pretty good. I mean, they're the only one, they're like the only place you can get those tacos and sometimes Euros. Like, it's worth it to go, but that smell is hard to get through. Yes, it is. And, uh, you know, we appreciate you sharing with us why this mystery entrances you so much. Um, moving on to the next story. Have you ever done so poorly in a class that you would risk it all to change your grade? Reporter Daniel Gross finds out if there's a secret hack to acing your classes. At Northwestern, it's always midterm season. Every quarter, unlucky students get grades they're unhappy with. But what if a student wants to take matters into their own hands? Caesar is a software Northwestern professors use to enter students' official grades at the end of the quarter. I was told to say WNUR News does not condone hacking. But with so many computer science majors, someone's at least thought about it, right? So, hypothetically, what would it take to change your grade? Now, it's worth noting that this is not an original idea. In fact, the concept of hacking into a school's computer system to change grades was seen in pop culture as early as 1983 in the movie War Games. Are those your grades? Yeah. I don't think that I deserved it. Do you? War Games got America talking about computer security and is credited with influencing multiple laws on cybersecurity, including the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act of 1984. Unlike in the film, you can't access Northwestern servers with just a phone call. To get to your grades, you'll have to get past a team of professionals at the Northwestern Information and Security Office. We supported over 26.5 million single sign-on logins last year and over 8.3 million multi-factor transactions. Over 669 million threats blocked by university firewalls last year. The security operations team is triaging events and looking at events traffic every day 
um, and we have a a partner organization that kind of takes the the off hours. So there are eyes on on event logs 24/7, 365. That's Brandon Grill. I'm the senior director for technology planning and security, and I lead the information security office here in Northwestern IT. Someone trying to hack into Caesar would have to get past the security measures Grill and his team operate and maintain. From a, a technical perspective, those systems are maintained by the Northwestern IT Infrastructure Group and have all of kind of the industry standard protections around the, the technical systems for, you know, patch and vulnerability management. We leverage a uh, kind of, I hate to use the term state of the art, but one of the, the best in the market um, from a endpoint detection and anti-malware, antivirus system. And that's running on all of our, uh, on Caesar and, and the student, the infrastructure running that. Um, and then we have a bunch of physical protection layers as well. If you manage to get past that security gauntlet, it still would not be smooth sailing. You can go to jail for that. Only if you're over 18. As mentioned before, there are laws against hacking. Many laws, in fact. I guess it depends a lot on the situation. There are data breach laws which require the the operators of breached systems to take mitigating measures and notify users and various things like that, which vary from state to state and vary in their exact provisions. That's Sunu Park. So my background is in computer science and law. I have a PhD in computer science and a JD after that. And I do research in security, privacy, and technology law more broadly. There are computer crime laws, such as the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Yes, the same law from earlier that was influenced by war games. Which try to mitigate some of the harms and make legally actionable some of the, some of the damage that might be done. The scope of these laws is actually a bit vague and too broad. The motivating idea is that if you do gain unauthorized access to a system and potentially do damage, then that should be legally actionable. In practice, this law can be used like that and can also be uh, used because of the way that it's ambiguous to to cause legal liability for a range of other activities, um, including research activities, actually, in, in a harmful way because it, the scope is sort of uh, overbroad. It's complicated because this law is quite controversial. <laughs> the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act prohibits knowingly accessing a computer without authorization or exceeding authorized access and obtaining information. This is a felony and carries a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison. As Park mentioned, the law is the subject of major criticism, usually for being too severe, which would make it hard to win a case against. There are also Northwestern specific policies to take into account. Accessing your grades would fall under the jurisdiction of FERPA, or the Family Education Rights and Privacy Act. The official Northwestern policy states that to access students' data, you need written consent from the student in question. Hacking into Caesar to change your grades would potentially violate this and might incur a significant punishment. If none of this is enough of a deterrent, then the question remains, is this even possible? The bottom line is essentially that we don't know how to build perfect systems, and this is hard both because of the system security questions involved, but also because 
there are always humans involved in computing systems and uh, humans are fallible. And so accounting for all possible attack vectors is, is we don't know how to do that yet. And so following industry standards helps a lot to mitigate, mitigate risks, but it won't make a system foolproof. I would say that we have multiple layers of protection against that happening. For WNUR News, I'm Daniel Gross. And now for our next guest, we have Jessica Watts, another favorite member here at WNUR News. Uh, Jessica, what is a mystery about Northwestern that entrances you? I am completely entranced by why no one knows that Boo Booey's real name is not Boo Booey, and it is Daniel Richard Booey. Um, I feel like not a lot of people know about that. I just found out about it a week ago, and I don't get it. Like, why does no one know that that's a thing? I, I feel like it should be also with him, like, dropping. He's becoming, like, a national figure with exactly. how he's playing. Yeah. And I think, like, it should be similar to, like, a Dwayne The Rock in quotes Johnson. Like, why doesn't he go by Daniel quotes Boo Exactly. And before we, uh, you know, go any further, who is Boo Booey? Boo Booey is... Um, number zero on our men's basketball team, he is, in my opinion, the best player. <laughs> um, but yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think you're wrong with that, um, yeah. I, in a lot of people's opinions, in my opinion. Um, but, uh, so, why do you think, you know, he uses Boo as opposed to Daniel Richard? I think that it's a way to separate himself from other people. Anybody could be named Daniel Richard, but going by Boo Booey, like it has a ring to it. We do a special chant for him at games. Um, I think it's just a way to set himself apart and really like make a name for himself. That's true. I also feel like for branding purposes now, he has to just stick with it. Absolutely. And I think he should stick with it. It's really good. It's got a nice ring to it, like I said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it. Like it a lot. All right. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Sherlock Holmes, true crime podcasts. Some of the most popular forms of media right now are mysteries. But what about the most classic form, the mystery novel? Reporter Pazbaum looks into the appeal of mystery novels. And then there were none. Sherlock Holmes, The Da Vinci Code... Some of the most famous books in the world are grounded in the desire to solve a puzzle. This popularity is unsurprising. Mystery novels have several characteristics that are unique to their genre. They're really just immediately engrossing. And then also stories like this tend to do a really good job of weaving the plot into aspects of culture and pressing political questions that are you know, kind of current at the moment of, of their writing. That's Professor Clay Cogswell. He's a visiting assistant professor at Northwestern who teaches an English seminar titled Murder on the Bestseller List. The interest for me goes way back. I've kind of always been attracted to detective stories from when I was a little kid. Um, and then later reading Poe's detective stories. I don't know if you know, but he essentially invents the genre of detective fiction in the 1840s, and they're just three amazing stories. Um, and then interestingly, in the 1940s, Borges, who does a total overhaul of the detective story, writes three stories that are exactly a century later. Anyways, I read those really early on, and then got totally hooked by Sherlock Holmes, and so I've kind of just always read and loved them, detective fiction and murder stories. Professor Cogswell enjoys mystery novels for a somewhat academic reason. 
these novels often reflect the uncertainty and concerns pervading society at the time of their writing. For Carson Larry, though, the intellectual challenge of reading mystery novels makes them appealing. I'm Carson Larry, and I'm a freshman. I like the fact that it's kind of like a big knot when you start, and then slowly but surely it's unraveled, and you get the whole story up end. There's also a couple psychological reasons why people enjoy reading mysteries. According to an article from the British Psychological Society, people are inherently curious beings, mysteries often offer a total escape from readers' everyday lives, and it can be satisfying to attempt to solve the mystery alongside the characters and then have one's suspicions confirmed. But do these theories play out in real life? There's definitely an analogy between the work being done by the quirky, eccentric genius detective in the story and the investigative work that's done by readers who are trying to analyze the story really deeply and understand how it works. So finding the criminal is a little bit like a version of coming up with an argument about how things fit together, how we can make sense of a somewhat jumbled and complicated, maybe messy text, and then maybe also complicated, messy cultural context that the story is um, bringing into play. This cultural context is an important aspect of many mystery novels. There's plots on the cellular side, Hope Never Dies comes to mind. That's a fan fiction style book published during Trump's presidency that follows Obama and Biden on a quest to solve the mysterious murder of Biden's favorite train conductor. Other books, though, address political and societal issues in a more serious manner. Pauline Hopkins, this um, wonderful writer who writes what's generally considered to be the first black detective story called Talma Gordon in 1900, is talking about questions of U.S. expansion and questions around the ways in which racial difference is policed through marriage laws through this early detective story. Professor Cogswell elaborated on Talma Gordon's unique status as a book, whereas if it was written today, it would likely be a screenplay ultimately turned into a movie. This story, which comes from a time before there were any films about these sorts of things, is capturing something of the experience of debating these um, questions of politics through the lens of a murder mystery. As Professor Cogswell implied, today's most popular mystery stories are not consumed as books. In the 2019-2020 TV season, almost 20% of shows were categorized as crime shows, and according to an ABC survey, 44% of podcast listeners listen to true crime shows. Professor Cogswell and Carson argue, though, that novels offer a unique and maybe even better way to digest mysteries. The complexity of identifying with the protagonist from the inside is maybe one of the main differences, that a novel can portray the interior conflicted experience that leads up to the moment of a horrific crime in ways that is maybe just more challenging for a podcast. It lets me have more creative freedom in what I think of the characters. Professor Cogswell and Carson are both diehard mystery fans, so I couldn't let them go without asking their go-to novel. I'm going to say Strangers on a Train by Patricia Highsmith. The movie adaptation that Hitchcock does is also excellent. Sharp Objects by uh, Gillian Flynn. Basically, a reporter with scars from her past goes back to her hometown, and suddenly it is plagued by murders upon her return. I don't know about you, but I'll certainly be looking for those the next time I go to the library. For WNUR News, I'm Passbaum.
WNUR's Phonathon is happening now. Our annual fundraiser helps support station maintenance and upkeep, student events, and most importantly, it keeps us ad-free. It's running until the 27th of February this year. Listeners, we all can donate at WNUR.org donate. There are various tiers available, each with different merchandise perks. As other reporters from this quarter's special broadcast investigate mysteries currently unfolding, WNUR News' Brandon Condritz tackled one that's been developing under our noses for decades, the history of WNUR News. Here's the story. Have you ever stopped to think about who came before you? Say you're sitting on a bus, in your dorm, or even at the airport. How many people have sat in that same seat, lived in that same room, or waited in line to board that same flight? It's a curious question, but it got me thinking. Who in WNUR News came before me? What stories were important? Was the studio always in the same building? What did shows look like? With those questions in mind, I set out to piece together a mystery that's been unfolding for decades, the history of WNUR News. The story starts on May 8th, 1950. That's when the first station engineer, Charles Kingsford Smith, officially broke radio silence. WNUR-FM was armed with a 100-watt transmitter and could reach Evanston and Eastern Skokie. It joined the existing WCAT-AM, which broadcasted talk show segments throughout the day. WNUR's first broadcast happened that night from 7 to 9 p.m. in the station's first home, Annie Mae Swift Hall. News was broadcast five days a week. Sandwiched between shows like Dinner Date and Keyboard, these 10 to 15 minute segments consisted of live reads from a wire service. Coverage was split between music and news in an attempt to draw listeners away from those competing commercial stations. The station quickly grew and programming quickly expanded. Records and photos show a public affairs program called Over the Coffee began in 1952 and it aired on Wednesdays and Fridays at 8 p.m. They broadcasted from a coffee shop inside the current Hilton Orrington Hotel, known as The Huddle at the time. Documents by Bill Butler, the first station manager, say special guests included Senator Joseph McCarthy, Illinois Governor Adlai Stevenson, and pop singer Tony Arden. 1964 marked the beginning of live news coverage for the station. Detailed rundown sheets pulled from the Northwestern Library's archives dictate everything from who was anchoring to when certain lines should be read. Live coverage became especially important in 1972. According to then-first-year Jonathan Lehrer, WNUR's coverage of an on-campus protest, quote, cemented WNUR news as a campus voice. What began as a rejection of raising tuition prices quickly turned into a blockade opposing the Vietnam War. Wires were strung through the trees from the Annie Mae Swift studio to Scott Hall so reporters could interview live from Sheridan Road. But WNUR News was about more than just providing in-depth event coverage. It was important to the journalists themselves. Listen to this quote from alum Alan Cox, who pursued a career in TV reporting post-graduation. In the early to mid-70s, some of us who intended to major in broadcast journalism were frustrated because Medill's curriculum dictated that everyone should have a proficiency in writing for newspapers. We weren't allowed to take broadcast courses until we were seniors. Some of us didn't want to wait that long, so WNUR was our opportunity. The student volunteer staff produced dozens of newscasts a week. 
Throughout the 70s, alumni say the news staff had 20 to 30 journalists. Promotional materials from the period show they covered everything from the YMU show to on-campus streakers and Vice President Spiro Agnew's resignation. Writers, announcers, traffic operators, and news directors combined their efforts to represent a broad array of stories relating to the greater NU community. This is where news's history takes a turn. In 1977, WNUR installed a more powerful transmitter. At the time, no other independent radio station in the Chicagoland area had airwaves that extensive. So over the next 15 years, student DJs took the increased listenership to play with new styles of music, and news took a backseat. All of this experimentation gave way to many of the shows the station still has today, but live news didn't seem to exist anymore. In the late 90s, news returned, but it isn't clear what form it took. Next time you're in Lewis Hall, take a look inside the trophy case outside the current WNUR studios. The station won a smattering of awards for coverage in the late 90s and early 2000s, from the Illinois News Broadcasters Association to the Society of Professional Journalists and College Broadcasters Incorporated. It appears the station was producing some original newsworthy content, but there aren't many records showing exactly what was being reported on. Original storytelling grew larger as the 2000s chugged along. The news block firmed up its leadership structure with a news director overseeing programming and an executive producer managing reporters and technical operations. The station also officially moved to Lewis Hall, where it is housed today. News staff produced more long-form pieces, often featuring live interviews. Here's a snippet from Your World with WNUR News, one of the segments from 2015. We're here with Dr. Donna Nelson, the science and technical advisor to Breaking Bad, the television show. I think for a while that scientists were depicted badly, but now it's becoming cool again to be a scientist. And of course, being a scientist, I like that. We are joined in the WNUR studios by NPR foreign correspondent Kelly McEvers. I was picked up at a checkpoint and held for what is basically a misdemeanor. And instead of telling me to just go home, Home. They kept me for three days and accused me of being a spy. Your World with WNUR News is honored to sit down with Bill Nye the Science Guy. We're talking on the radio through a satellite that's orbiting the Earth, that's moving. The whole thing is a big rocket science problem. Special broadcasts like, like the one you're listening to right now began in 2017. And according to former news director Elisa Nazair, original coverage returned full force to the station in 2018. The three section desks we know today, Campus and Local, Arts and Entertainment, and Oddities, emerged as a way to organize content. Coverage has persisted since then, even despite shutdowns caused by COVID-19. A daily news brief launched in October 2020, now the Daily Cat, bringing back the station's concept of live red headlines. Good morning and welcome to the Daily Cat, WNUR's daily news brief. I'm your host, Angelina Campanile, with a few things you need to know today. In recent years, WNUR News is still about the experience of hands-on audio reporting. 2020-2021 news director Angelina Campanile, who started The Daily Cat, echoed the sentiment of reporters from the 70s. It isn't all about the news. It's about the people. Because we're a small group, like, it became more of a, like, more of a team, you know, rather than just a bunch of people you just see in a newsroom or on a document filling in tabs. So that was nice. Live from WNUR News, I'm Maria Jimena Aragon. I'm Iris Swarthout. I'm Paul O'Connor. I'm Helen Bradshaw. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1 
Evanston, Chicago. Our website, WNUR.News, launched in 2021. After nearly 70 years of covering news relating to Northwestern and beyond, WNUR News now has a place for its coverage to live forever. Today, the news block broadcasts three shows per week with content curated by a diverse slate of reporters. Of course, I could not have pieced this together on my own. Current co-news director, Sarah Cadora, did significant research on the subject, and I thank her greatly for combing through various photos and articles from the Northwestern Library's archives. Several alumni, past news directors and reporters alike, contributed their experiences too. Like all histories, this is a work in progress. It's still unfolding. In the coming months, WNUR News's past will be cemented on our website. That way, future generations of WNUR News reporters can answer that burning question. Who came before them? Now, back to scheduled programming. For WNUR News, I'm Brandon Condritz. Dating apps? Mutual friends? Student org events? How does one get into a relationship here? Reporter Michelle Huang takes on the mystery of finding love on Northwestern's campus. On February 14th, cute little hearts and I love you messages flooded Instagram story after Instagram story, and the Northwestern relationship mystery ignited once more. How are all these people finding relationships and on this campus. However, there are people who have solved the mystery. They are the ones who have cracked the case and found a significant other. Weinberg sophomores Audrey Joe and Mason Bryant are two of them. I remember the, the first time I really knew was last year. We were in France. And I, I just came back from a play and I was very obnoxious, I think. And I just was being silly and lying. And she, she stopped and she said, you lie a lot. <laughs> Lie? Yeah, she said I just, you like, lie a lot. He was like joking a lot. From there, Mason and Audrey's relationship really began to progress through a book club. So basically, we were talking about, we both like to read a lot, just separately, and we talked about it a lot. And I was talking about how, like, growing up, I never, like, let myself indulge in, like, romance girly novels. So I was texting him, and I was like, oh, like, I never read any, like, of those books, um, because I, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, oh, yeah, me too. I was like, okay then what if we read a rom romance book together at the same time? Like, like it's a little book club. It's anyway, fun though. Yeah, so we did that and then... Talked a lot about winter break. Like the first thing I did, I think, when I came back was I asked her on a date. Weinberg freshman Asia Frazier met her boyfriend, McCormick freshman Donnie Carl, through a mutual friend. They saw each other constantly at events hosted by their friend's scholarship house. During those events, we'd just be like joking with each other, like kind of teasing each other. Um, we'd play like some games together. And then while that was happening, we just so happened to talk about things that we just happened to have in common. Like we have the same taste kind of in video games. We have the same humor. Things came to a head during one late night stroll. I noticed that he was rambling about something. So I was just kind of like, you know what, whatever. And I like told him how I felt about him and he felt the same way. Medill freshman Juliet Allen and her partner, Eleni Tekos, are a wildcat welcome couple, but one of the rare cases that have lasted. They met in person for the first time at First Night Northwestern. However, things didn't start progressing until a particularly bold moment from Eleni. We actually stood outside of MFC talking about other people that we were interested in. Something came up about types, and the funny thing about my type is that the only people who ever asked me what my type is are people who are my type. 
And so I, like, Eleni was like, well, what's your type? And I was like, um, curly-haired brunettes. <laughs> and they were like, that's me. Um, and so they were like, so, like, like, are you trying to date me then? And I was like, sure. These couples all have different origin stories. However, there is a similar through line apparent. These relationships came when the people involved weren't focused on finding one. Mention this part, but like the events I would go to would be events that I was interested in. Obviously, like they have movie nights every now and then and stuff like that. And he just so happened to be at the same events that I was. Like I wasn't particularly going out of my way to do anything, but like it just kind of happened. Before her relationship with Mason, Audrey was searching. She dabbled in dating apps a bit as well. However, nothing came about until she let go of that desire. <laughs> I was making my New Year's resolutions. I well, don't want a boyfriend so bad. And I had like started really internalizing that. And then he was like, do you want to go get dinner? And I was like, I do want to go get dinner. And it really was like, some people say it, and I'm like, I used to not really believe it. It like, what, like comes when you're not fine looking for it or whatever. But I mean, that, that is what happened. For Juliet, her focus was on meeting people. Not necessarily in the relationship sense, but more in the community sense. I was definitely, like, keeping my eye out for people, um, but not necessarily, like, in a relationship sense. I just was curious about, like, who was here. Gathering from the stories of these couples, the solution to the relationship mystery might just be to... Do the things that you love, and you will meet people who love the same things through that. While understanding that... I think, like, the, the popular conception of relationship is, like, once you get into one, you're objectively happy. Or like all of your problems are solved or whatever. Uh, obviously that's not, no, <laughs> they are, no they are. <laughs> no, but I, that's obviously not true. And I don't think that's why you should look for a relationship. I think you look once you're already happy with your life uh, and you've found someone who oh, yeah. does something yeah. else. And knowing. As soon as you stop looking at everyone like a potential partner or like trying to like force connections with people who you think might be a good partner it'll it'll come in conclusion live your best life let the universe do its thing and love will find you for wnur news i'm michelle huang phonathon is happening right now it's the one time a year we ask for money our annual fundraiser helps support station maintenance and upkeep, student events, and most importantly, keeps us ad-free. You can donate now at wnur.org donate. That's wnur.org donate. Donations close February 27th. All right, we have our next WNUR News staff member in the studio with us, Paz Baum, to answer the question, what's a mystery about Northwestern that entrances you? Pause. The most mysterious thing I could think of is the purple line schedule. Ooh, tell us. So I go to the Davis line every few weeks to try and get down into Chicago. It usually says the train will be there in about, I don't know, maybe five, ten minutes. More often than not, I'm standing there for like 20, 30 minutes in the cold. Yeah, I agree. It's not fun, especially, especially in the winter. Well, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. On to our next story, Nick.
Oh, no. The next story is me. Our last story come uh, as regards the fraternity Sigma Alpha Epsilon and their bell on campus. Oh, the one that rang a ton last year? And then suddenly stopped? Turns out that SAE, the SAE bell actually isn't a bell. What began as an investigation into a ringing sound revealed a history involving xylophones, marimbas, and trees thousands of years old. WNUR news reporter Mika Ellison has this story about the things we choose to preserve and why. Before I get started, a note. This story concerns a bell located within the Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity, specifically the national headquarters. The Northwestern chapter of SAE has been the subject of several recent controversies, but this story focuses on the bell and the bell alone. When I was a freshman, I lived in West Fairchild. Across from the Fairchildren was a huge building with a large bell. That bell would factor into our freshman year quite a lot. I'll let my doormate Lizzie Wilkerson tell you about it. So I have lived in West Fairchild for the past two years, which is directly across the street of the SAE Bell, and it has terrorized me. So sometimes, always at random times, never on the hour, never on the quarter hour, before 7 p.m., we would just want to take a nap after a really hard day, and the bell would start ringing, and you think, okay, it's only gonna ring for like a minute max, which is already a really long time for a bell to ring, but it would go for two minutes, stop for 15 seconds so you're thinking oh it's finally over and then it would start ringing again and it seemed like it only played when we took a nap a year later i was walking past the building and i thought i would call the sae national headquarters to see if i could get a look inside and to my surprise they picked up my name is caitlin haycock and i'm the office and events coordinator at sigma alpha epsilon so i help run the building but i also work hand in hand with the fraternity caitlin opened the door and showed me to the object of mystery right now we're in front of our deacon tower chime system from our vantage point on the first floor of the building the bell system looks like a steampunk version of one of those old music boxes with rolls of hole punched paper that are run through a metal mechanism to create notes I like to call it the 1930s iPod because they didn't really have this technology then. Deegan um, was specialty here in Chicago. Um, so this was like the top of the line when we built the building in 1930. So I just opened it up to show the alternate rolls. Mm -hmm. But you can see if you pull it out, you can see I Love You Truly by Jacobs Bond or <laughs> March On by Aida Verdi like, or Brahms Lullaby. <laughs> The mystery of when the bell rang was cleared up rather quickly. So there's a time clock system and you actually set it. It's actually inside the closet of my office here. Mm -hmm. uh, let's pull it up. I think it's right here. We're in my closet next to the, the control system because this is all the wiring that controls it. Um, but you set it as a time and then it would play it. There really was no time set. There, were, I think we tried to keep, keep it around the noon hour just because that's a good time for everyone to be awake. <laughs> but Caitlin pointed me to another mystery about the bell tower, why it hasn't rung since last year. It's 100 year old technology, so it is kind of fickle. Um, we did have it up and running last year, which you do recall with the bells running, but it was at random times. And then only two people in the country can fix this. It's, it's kind of a labor of love. Naturally, I had to track down the man himself, one of only two people in the country that has the knowledge to fix this kind of Deegan bell, or as he informed me, tower chimes. My name is William Pugh and I take care of Deegan tower chimes throughout the U.S. I don't like to be called a contractor. I'm a musician. William runs the company Top Rung Tower Chime and Organ Service. 
He also told me that he is actually the only Deegan Tower Chime repairman left in the U.S. For him, this is a love story that spans nearly half a century. I saw my first Deegan in 1976, and I was smitten, I guess. <laughs> now, William spends his time driving across the country, maintaining and restoring the roughly 100 Deegan Tower Chimes that are still in operation. He's full of stories from places as far as Abilene, Kansas. Brown Memorial Home is the only retirement home in the world with a Deegan Tower chime. Kingsburg, California. There are bees in the walls. Every few years they harvest the honey. And Franklin, Indiana. I lost a year of my life to an avian tuberculosis from bat guano in Franklin, Indiana. And the bats were protected, but I'm not. Some of the sites uh, are remarkable. Um, I understand why there's OSHA. But for William, this is more than just a job. It's a career. It's an obsession. It's not a, just a, a job and nine to five and go home. <laughs> I sort of live these things. And I'm still learning, which is one of the things I love about it. William told me that the last time he repaired the SAE bell, it was squirrels nesting in the strikers causing the problem. Only members are allowed up in the bell tower. So I asked him to describe it to me. It'd be like a wind chime on, on steroids. The chimes are suspended from their tops. That's one thing that distinguishes them from bells. They are extruded tubes, a giant pasta machine up in Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, American brass is where they were extruded. They stopped at C, that was about 14 feet long, because that's all the lathes at the factory could handle. And uh, that's about 400 pounds of bronze. Uh, chimes are struck at the top, except for wind chimes. Always an exception. Among his many contacts across the US, William has also had a variety of experiences. He has a spreadsheet of different iterations of his company's name. The paperwork came back top rung town charm and organ service and i figure oh, i've been called a lot worse other contacts have been william for many years my contact person in galesburg illinois is getting on in years he doesn't go up the tower with me anymore he played those chimes um, as a young adult he proposed to his wife on Christmas Eve, in between playing two selections on the tower chimes. Uh, it's very much a part of his life and, and her life. But after over 30 years of traveling the country with his husband, fixing Deegan shower times on both coasts, William is finally getting ready to retire. The towers keep getting taller and my toolbox gets heavier. He says he's proud of the work he's done. It's keep these wonderful instruments playing for another generation and I, I believe I have found people to keep them ringing for the next generation. In fact, at this point, I've just about done two generations myself. Uh, if we don't preserve the, the good things that have been done in the past, we'll, we'll have to reinvent the wheel. We'll forget it. I wanted to know more about the mysterious J.C. Deegan. So I visited the Deegan building, which used to house the factory that made Deegan bells. It still has a connection to the original factory. Century Mallets, a repair company for instruments like Deegan bells, was started by one of the last workers of the Deegan company. 
It's operated now by Andres Bautista. When I visited, he was actually working on a set of Deegan Bells. This set of bells, like I said, this is probably from the 19, 1920s, 1930s. So it's close, this one's close to 100 years old, if not 100 years old already. Century Mallet looks like if Santa's workshop was taken over by the percussion section of an orchestra. To show me the bells, Andres has to move aside a marimba almost as big as he is. Andres is one of only four or five people in the country who can still tune these instruments. He gets instruments from all over the country, including the New York Philharmonic and the Chicago Symphony and he's traveled as far as New Zealand to repair instruments. I asked him about the history of the J.C. Deegan Company. Deegan actually started in St. Louis. He was a clarinetist and was very much interested in, in pitch. He tells me that in the 1800s, when Deegan was starting out, there was no American standard of tuning. Ensembles all tuned to each other. Deegan was the first to standardize, tuning all his instruments to make the A note 440 hertz. He started creating tuning forks and musical bells, like small musical bells. That's, in fact, that the name of the company actually started as uh, J.C. Deegan Musical Bells. But how exactly does one tune, say, a xylophone? But uh, the tuning all happens underneath, underneath the bar. So, you know, any bar that you see that goes out of tune, um, we put back in tune by shaving or carving uh, grinding in different spots of the bar. So oh. it, it all happens underneath, all of it. Interesting. Yeah. So you have to like change the structure of the bar itself? Correct, yeah. And sometimes it's small, minute changes, and sometimes it's very, very big changes. How do you know like where to shave or like? It, it just, you just learn how to do it with whoever's done it before. It gets passed down from person to person. Andre spends his days using a tuning machine and carefully shaving off tiny pieces of xylophones, marimbas, and bells, ensuring that each one is perfectly tuned in up to three places on each bar. I asked Andres, what's the point of all this? The resources of what these instruments are made of, specifically rosewood, is an endangered species. So a lot of the rosewood that you see on Deegan instruments, on Leedy instruments, on older muster instruments, um, that wood is not going to be around anymore. Those, those pieces of wood are thousands of years old. It's a, those are uh, thousand-year-old trees. Those don't exist anymore. So if we don't preserve it, we're never going to hear that kind of music ever again. The, the old Deegans, the old ladies, um, that steel is also something that we're, we're just not going to see ever again. I asked Caitlin the same question. You have a memory with a song, and then you don't realize that you have that memory until you're gone. I went to Butler University. We had a bell tower. So, like, to hear that bell tower going to class just keeps in mind with the memory of college. It keeps in mind with that memory of that time and place. So I just appreciate that we can kind of create those experiences for people still. I asked Andres to play us out on the Deegan Bells, since the one on campus isn't quite ready yet. But first, I wanted to end on one of Bill's stories of a chime set he rescued from a cemetery. It's now in this wonderful Catholic church in Chicago, and they had a lightning strike that fried all the phone systems, it fried the computers, it fried organ switching, and the tower chimes started playing. So all it did was make the, the role player start, and it played some tunes on the chimes and then shut off. It was unmanaged. For WNUR News, 
I'm Mika Ellison. We have one final Northwestern mystery that's entrancing Nick and me. How do we end the show? Hmm. I guess we could do what we always do. How's that sound? Let's do it. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. You can listen to these and other WNUR News stories on our website, WNUR.news. That's WNUR.news. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our producer today is Sarah Kadora, and our reporters are Daniel Gross, Michelle Wong, me, Nick Song, Pause Bomb, my fellow co-hosts, Brandon Kondritz, and Mika Ellison. From all of us here at WNUR News, thanks for listening to our Winter Quarter special broadcast. I'm Brandon Kondritz. And I'm Nick Song. Catch our next newscast on February 27th, 2023 at 6 p.m. Now, back to scheduled programming.